Hello, Charles here for another episode of Tech Demand Weekly. One of my favourite episodes from last year was with freelance content writer Elise Dobson, where we delved into the world of storytelling. On this week's episode, Elise is back to take a look at some of the most successful advertising campaigns of the last few years and give her advice on what marketers should be doing with their content in 2019. You know, it might sound impossible, but look where you're meeting customers face to face. Are you going to industry conferences where they hang out? Make a list of people you want to connect with and get them a personalised piece of company swag. You know, it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be as literal as engraving the name on a product. If your customers are searching for a question that can be answered in a few sentences, do it. Don't overboard them with information if they're not looking for it. If they're only looking for a short, specific answer, forcing them to scan a 2,000 word blog post in order to find the answer to that question could be frustrating. Keeping existing content up to date is crucial for SEO um, and by that I mean things like new statistics, new resources, new images. But storytelling wise, I think it depends on the story itself. Elise Dobson is a freelance writer, blogger and ghostwriter from Manchester, England. The last time she appeared on the podcast, Elise talked about Zendesk and how it used the story of its brand name being used by another company as part of a marketing campaign. To start this episode, I asked Elise if there was a campaign from the last few months that had stood out for her. So I might be biased saying this because they're one of my clients, but I love what Databox are doing at the minute. Um, especially with the content that they're putting out. I wouldn't really call it a campaign as such, but just a bit of background on them. Um, They're a B2B SaaS company who basically have business analytics software. Um, My first thoughts on that, and probably everyone who's listening to this, is that the content you can create for that really sounds pretty dry and boring. Um, I know I would think that anyway. But they make their brand and their content fun and appeal to people because, after all, even in you know B2B, the person on the other side of the screen who you're talking to is still actually a human with a personality. So what they're doing is they expand on topics their customers want to know without restricting it to analytics. So I think they look at their buyer personas and think, what other content outside of analytics do our customers have an interest in? But the thing I love most about their strategy is the way they're doing it. So they reach out to people who might use their software or have an audience who might be interested in it and ask them to contribute snippets of advice to a blog post that I publish on their website. So, for example, I worked with them recently on a post where 40 experts shared their best tip for starting a content strategy. They then reach out to those experts after that's being published who'll share the content with their own audience, which gets obviously gets them more social shares, site traffic and ge- just general awareness, which I think going back to that storytelling element, Databox are really proving that the, you know, a human brand and even though the B2B doesn't have to be boring and spreading the word about their services in the meantime and be also showing other people that people struggle with the same thing and that they acknowledge those problems the target audience are suffering with helping with that relatability and just basically showing that hey we understand what you mean we're helping you to solve it oh by the way we also sell this software so there there are some notable brand names that transcend their original meaning and what i mean by that is if if i said google to you then the majority of people will think of not just the search engine, but they'll actually think of the, it's kind of become an adjective for actually doing the search on the internet in itself. Um, 
how much of that sort of end product, if you like, is down to the marketing campaign in the first place, do you think? Um, I think a small bit, but the problem with things like that is that Google and, say, Netflix, for example, um, they're massive, massive brands and have huge market shares. So it's really easy for them to turn a brand name into an adjective. Um, but I don't think that come down from a marketing campaign per se. I think more embedding those words into their language so that their customers use them. And because they have so many customers, it doesn't take as long to get that going. But I think that's pretty much almost impossible if you don't have billions of dollars in revenue and thousands and thousands of customers to actually make those words have a meaning. To make that successful and get your adjective brand name into the dictionary, um, you need a huge market share or at least have amazing brand awareness that almost everyone has at least heard of you. But changing people's language is hard. I mean, there's people who study this professionally and it's basically really tough to change the way people speak because we're so used to it. Um, but I think to get there in the long run, small and medium-sized businesses need to start using the language in their own content. So say blog posts, social media, video scripts, in those they should all be referring to their name as an adjective. Um, I think it's the only way to get that new descriptive adjective word into their vocab. But again, it, you still might be waiting years for that to pay off. I, I suppose in a way it's... Like you say, the fact that Google is such a, a big company and, and such a, I suppose, old company now as well. They've been going on around for, for many, many years now. And they've just basically monopolized the market, even though there are other search engines out there that are still used, like like Microsoft Bing. Um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other ones that, that might still be in use. And all I can come up with is Ask Jeeves, which I'm not even sure is still, it still exists. But the fact that they, you know, they, they end up monopolizing the, the, the space that they're actually in is, I suppose, the actual, the bigger um, reason for it happening everybody sort of tends to know now that well you know if they're going to use a search engine I, I would probably guess that at least 90 percent of the population of internet users wouldn't even think twice about typing google into their internet browser so in a way it's it's kind of one of those things that you think to yourself well b2b marketing is never going to achieve that because they're operating at such a smaller market yeah. And even if you get like a, a huge successful brand doing that, there's always going to be competitors. And I think with software, it's relatively new, especially B2B software. I mean, it's not as, you know, old as B2C selling products to real people. It's everything's online. And I think there's a few people who have cottoned onto that quickly and, and they're the successful brands now, but it's really hard to get market share off those other people unless they're play, plowing like millions into you know business development and things like that so it's not necessarily something that uh, a b2b marketer should be aiming to achieve in their marketing campaign then not necessarily i don't think um an adjective brand name is as valuable as storytelling i mean i know we talked this about this in our last episode but I mean, sure, adjective brand names are good because you get people to become aware of you and you're the go-to source for that thing. But the chances are, if you're making that happen and you're working towards that, you're already 90% of the way there because people already know you. I read Garrett Moon's book, The 10X Marketing Formula, and he uses an analogy that is like, don't focus on 10% growth, focus on 10X growth. So basically, I think 
going from 90% to 10% with the adjective brand name, it's just 10%. It won't make a massive, massive dent in the KPIs that you're looking for. Whereas a 10x campaign, for example, could be like a 5,000 word ebook. The process behind that is very tedious and long. So from set researching audiences, writing, designing, editing, building landing page, setting up email automations and the rest of it, it all takes time. But I think those types of 10x projects, especially when it comes to content, is what will really make a difference and help you to gain more market share and hopefully the end result could be you know using that adjective but I don't think that should be a a key thing to work towards I suppose in the way it's it's almost like a holy grail and if it happens it happens which is great um but just don't even contemplate the the thought of that happening especially with say a startup business um and and just let those things take over if you like um, once you get to the stage where people are using your brand name as an adjective um, to, you know, to do whatever it is that you're actually selling. Yeah. So another name that's kind of synonymous with more than just its brand is is Coke. Now, Coke is actually Coca-Cola. That's the actual brand name. Um, but if you were to say Coke, most people would understand that that's what it represents exclusively. I wanted to talk to you about their name on your bottle campaign that happened a few years ago that had people sharing pictures of their product across the world and, and essentially doing their marketing for them. Every time you look at me, I go really, really red. Thank you for showing me that... It's okay to be weird. She's the most positive, energetic, crazy person. You're always there for me, despite the arguments, the fights. This is for Andrea, my old art teacher. My little brother Dante. Jamie. Gonna share this coat with Megan. I'm gonna share this coat with Holly. And that's Holly. And that's Megan. (laughs) (laughs) What can B2B learn from campaigns such as that, do you think? I love this campaign. It showed how powerful personalization is for one. So the tons of studies that show, you know, how adding a name past purchasing behavior increases like email open rates, conversions, things like that. But they also created user generated content. So I just checked and on Instagram, the share a Coke hashtag has over 670,000 posts and pretty much 90% of them are photos of their product not only does that work wonders for their awareness but their marketing team don't have to plow you know as much time into creating resources like images because the customers are doing that for them and making that easy for them to find but another thing about that campaign is that they took it into the real world and didn't just rely on you know online marketing we always think that that's the only way forward um, and with almost everything being able to be done over the internet that's pretty a solid reason to just stick there but um I think combining the two and merging you know internet life and real life can work better like Coke demonstrated um so for example in B2B what can the company that you're working for create that's personalized and hand out in real life that might be tricky if they're an online service you know like a tool or software versus a product-based business you know it might sound impossible but look where you're meeting customers face to face 
Are you going to industry conferences where they hang out? Make a list of people you want to connect with and get them a personalised piece of company swag. You know, it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be as literal as engraving the name on a product. If you can show that you've done the effort to connect with them um, and taken time to do that, I think that's where you'll get the biggest rewards. Would you say that maybe things like having additional marketing material, like say a magazine, might sort of help with that sort of uh, campaign? So if you were going to a a conference or or something where you are able to network with other businesses um, that are within your field, or maybe even businesses that that don't realise that they know that they need your product, having something like a magazine to actually give out and put into people's hands, might that be a similar uh, kind of marketing tool for them yeah it can do and you can tie personalization back into that because you can just you know write on the first page hey it was great to meet you this is my email address drop me a line if you need any help and I think they've got a connection to you then while also reading the resources you know that they can just roll out I, I suppose in a way that if you are you're you're looking to sort of take examples from b to c and, and try and use them for for b2b the, the sort of the barriers to that the most obvious barriers to that are going to be the the, the amount or the size of your audience in the first place and, and the amount of prospects that you've actually got available to you but that doesn't mean that we should ignore b2c does it we, we should definitely still be you know taking the ideas that we're seeing because b2b has always traditionally been slightly behind b2c in, in terms of um, marketing techniques and, and, and getting their, their name sort of out there and going. But there's still an awful lot that you can take from B2C to actually put into your B2B marketing campaign, isn't there? Yeah, even if it's not, you know, an exact copy and paste, even this example. So Coke are personalising their products. Um, you could just take that overall general personalization aspects and put that into b2b and i think that is making a huge difference but i think people know that already but i just taking that offline and you know connecting with people in real life because even though they are you know business people they still have real lives so i think meeting them there and not just relying you know on internet for them to find you is a great way to do that Time for a short break now, and when we come back, we'll take a look at some other successful marketing campaigns. Tech Demand is a B2B platform who specialise in connecting organisations with their customers. Tech Demand create unique and engaging specialist content which is evergreen for generating campaign success. Visit the website tech-demand.com to discover how Tech Demand can help you. Welcome back to Tech Demand Weekly. This week I'm talking to Elise Dobson. Before the break, we discuss what B2B brands can learn from B2C marketing like the Coca-Cola Share a Coke campaign. Elise has previously spoken about the importance of creating a relationship with your audience through your content. There are many products out there that do the same thing. Apple Music and Spotify both allow you to listen to a Beatles album, for example, and Amazon Prime and Netflix are both video streaming platforms but people choose to use one of those platforms over the other. I asked Elise why she thinks that is, and whether it is just down to the way the products are advertised. 
that is a tough one that I don't really, to be honest, have a solid answer to. I mean, there are so many things that make people decide whether to pick one product over another. So, for example, how well known the brand already is and how trusted they are, just as a general consensus. How the product or service works, payment plans, cost, things like that. But I think storytelling can play a huge role in that, though. A study by Pennsylvania University found more people are perceptive towards stories than they are to dry statistics and facts. So if you're creating content that's personable, bubbly and full of stories, you could edge that bet. But it's tough to say whether content marketing can make your customers come to you over a competitor when there are so many other factors involved. You know, if there was a, a level playing field, as in both companies have the same price, interface, service offering, then I'd always place my bet on the storytelling brand to win the customer always. I'm aware that a lot of marketers are expecting to see content marketing become more personal in 2019. What would be your advice with regards to doing this? I always think it starts with really getting to know your customers. And I don't mean, you know, stalking LinkedIn groups and dipping into forums every now and again. I mean, having actual one-to-one conversations with your existing customers and using them as your buyer persona, because after all, you know, they're the people bringing money in and keeping your business afloat. Um, You just want more of them. So it's tough to make content personal because that word means different things for so many people. So for example, me personally, I might relate to, you know, a blog post about managing time as a freelancer. But if someone worked in-house, they probably wouldn't have any interest in that. Um, So I think a solid understanding of your customers that's not based on guesswork is the only way to figure out a which type of content you should you know invest your resources in and b what type of content they'll engage with so you could ask sales teams for example whether your customers use slang when they're talking to you um you know like the netflix and chill example you could check social media for or use a tool like mention you know to track those brand names Check your social media analytics to see whether tweets with GIFs perform better than those without. Or even just go straight to the horse's mouth and just ask a survey and see what you find. And I think the general findings that you you see, you should replicate them because that's what your customers are resonating with. Is there anything particular you're seeing being used more than other tools? So are you seeing businesses using um, more social media over um, I don't know, something like a podcast or, or video, for example. Is there anything that sort of is standing out at the moment for you? I think long form guides for me, because obviously as a writer, I see a lot of content, um, mainly written content, but with long form, you've got the opportunity to, you know, really show that you're an expert and prove to your audience who maybe at that point are just looking to see whether their problem exists and not ready to take the next steps, you know, to buy a service or product to solve that problem. But they just want to know that people and businesses especially understand them and get them. Um, And I think with long form content, that's a really great way to do that. So in your latest article published on your website, you talk about keeping your existing content up to date. Granted, the article is more about SEO than storytelling. But would you say it's a good advice to keep your story up to date as well and therefore more prevalent to your audience? Yep. Keeping existing content up to date is crucial for SEO. Um, And by that, I mean things like new statistics, new resources, new images. But storytelling wise, I think it depends on the story itself. So, for example, if it's a time story with specific dates that need to make sense, 
like a company journey from then to now for example then yeah definitely but those stories tend to be on you know about pages rather than meaty content blog post ebook type pieces so blog posts and ebooks and the like often have similar non-timed stories that appeal with their customers you know so they don't have to say this year we did this this year we did that so I saw an email from Drift, who are also a marketing software company, and they started one of their emails with, it's frustrating, you send email after email to top prospects, hoping for some sign of life at the other end. That's a story, but it's not told from them company specifically, it's told from the perspective of their target customer or mainly their subscriber's pain point. Um, so I think so long as your audience is staying the same, as in your buyer personas don't change, and there isn't, you know, a worldwide phenomenon that makes the story invalid, uh, like a bit far-fetched, but for the drift example, emails becoming non-existent, then I don't really think you need to update the narrative, it, it, only if it's like time story. Something else that I saw online now, I, I, I'm clutching this out the back of my head right now, so I, I, it might have come from your article, and I apologise if it is, but I saw somewhere that said that deleting 50% of your content might actually be a, a, a really good strategy. But I think we had Nathan Isaacs on the show and I asked him the sort of same question was about deleting out-of-date content. And he was quite adamant in a way that you you can do it. You need to make sure that you have all your redirects set up and, and everything like that so that the, you know, if a search engine ever points to that um, non-existent article, then there is something there to point you to an updated version or just back to your actual website or another article um, that's similar to it. But he was quite, I'm going to use the word adamant again, I suppose, um, to to sort of say that, you know, rather than deleting it, to just make sure it's always up to date. And I kind of struggle with that because I think I argued the point that, you know, would I really want to have something that I wrote, I don't know, five years ago, still there with, say, the the old problems, if you like, of my writing ability? Um, for people to see, especially if it's going to be the first thing that somebody might see. I, I kind of want them to see the best of me. And while that might have been the best of me from five years ago, it's not necessarily the best of me from the present time. So I, I kind of sort of look at that and go, is that is deleting your older stuff actually a, a, a good thing to do? Or is it more a case of, no, leave it there, and it shows the journey that you've actually come on as a business or as a writer, for example, for yourself? I would still say deleting content is important, especially, you know, SEO-wise. If that page is still driving traffic and people are going through Google to find that, if they land on, you know, a piece from 2011 and it's, you know, a 500-word a piece that doesn't really give any value, then I would definitely delete I don't see any point in, you know, editing that and keeping that fresh unless you're planning on taking that content and massively improving it, changing the whole structure and maybe even rewriting the whole thing. But then again, if you're doing that, you need to make sure that the keywords that you're targeting on that page aren't, you know, being cannibalized anywhere else. So it is it is tough to get, you know, a decent set of pages that rank for the keywords that you want to and also be high quality. But I think Google wants to show, you know, the best 
results for any query otherwise people if you know if we were going to google and visiting low quality pages that we weren't really getting information for we wouldn't use google anymore because it would just be useless um so they always want you know to show the best results and i think if you're leaving old content that hasn't been updated or if it has been updated then it's still not as good as your competition then i would definitely delete that what if it was something that was like a a really good successful um you know piece of storytelling marketing whether it's that that's a video or a particular blog post something like in b2c you're quite easily able to go to youtube and search for um you know an old advert from the 90s so uh, i an iconic advert that comes to mind for me is the the guinness advert with the horses you can still search for that and you can still find it now whether you can find it actually through Guinness's website or or anything that Guinness actually puts out themselves, I, I don't know. But is it worth, therefore, maybe if there is something that performed incredibly well for you, even though it might be out of date, just leaving it there for sort of prosperity's sake? It's really tough, you know, to decide whether it's worth deleting or not deleting. But what I would do in that case, if it was top performing and it was good quality content, I would set a reminder for every six months just to go back and check that A, it's still getting results as in search traffic, page views, high time on site. And then I'd also look what has started ranking within those six months that I could maybe take inspiration from what what do I need to compete with and then put that into the same blog post. So you're also constantly improving it, but you're also, you know, keeping an eye on the industry and knowing what you're competing with and making sure that you're beating that. So last week's episode, uh, we spoke with Stephanie Stahl from the Content Marketing Institute, and it was all about predictions for this coming year, 2019. Um, What are you expecting to see in the year ahead, Elise? Um, I think data has always been, you know, important, but I think that is a huge trend that marketers will jump on this year. Going back to what I mentioned about knowing your customers, data is the only way you can do that accurately and not have your entire content marketing strategy just be based on guesswork. But aside from that, I don't think, or at least hope, we'll see as much long form content uh, I mentioned earlier that that is what I'm seeing the di- the industry going in, but I'm a huge advocate for creating long form content that answers any question on a topic but we need to start thinking more about you know user and search intent so if your customers are searching for a question that can be answered in a few sentences do it don't overboard them with information if they're not looking for it if they're only looking for a short specific answer forcing them to scan a 2000 word blog post in order to find the answer to that question could be frustrating um so only go long form when it's necessary and wanted by your audience You can find out more about Elise and her work on her website, elisedopson.co.uk. That's it for this week's episode of Tech Demand Weekly. I'll be back next Wednesday. Thanks for listening.